You know, there was a song that came out uh, a few years ago. I'm Seth, by the way. Um, there was a song, uh, it was by a band called The Killers, which I don't necessarily like endorse all their music or whatever, so don't write me an email. Um, but there's a song, and it was called Human. And the question of the songwriter was, are we human or are we dancer? And I just have to be honest with you guys, I think I'm dancer. I mean, every time I hear that, I go, well, I mean, I'm human, but I'm dancer. I, I just can't not move. There's just, especially when I got my dancing shoes on. These are my dancing shoes, you guys. They look like running shoes, but they're dancing shoes for me. Um, I'm, I'm Seth. Like I said, I work with the creative department, and I work with the marriages here. I'm one of the pastors on staff. I serve with my beautiful and amazing wife, Micaiah. This is her. Um, before I jump in, Eric and Spirit, man, just as, you know, as the, the, you guys are servants of the week or whatnot, I just felt quickened to just share something with you. I just wanted to tell you guys, you guys are the people that make Christianity look so good. I'm, let, let me just tell you something. You two are appointed to break down the walls of religion. I'm telling you, I just saw, even, just even, even in the spirit realm, I saw you guys turning the tables over like Jesus did in the temple. And you said, this is not what the temple was about. And I just wanted to commend you both. I just felt like God just quickened that scripture that let us not grow weary in doing good. For if you do not give up, you will reap a harvest. And let me encourage you, do not grow weary in doing good. You are making a dent in the kingdom of God. And I know like the missions organization, yes, but I'm talking about personally. I'm talking, let's look at New Covenant and let's put that aside right now. You two are making a dent in Coeur d'Alene, Idaho, and the United States. You are so full of life. You are like the opposite. Like, this is what happens. Sometimes Christians come to the party, and it's like a wet towel. It's like, oh, no, the Christians are here. But when Eric and Spirit show up, the party starts. And I'm, I'm telling you, you guys, you bring life and hope and joy wherever you go. And I just want to thank you for that, for real, okay? Beautiful. You guys rock. Uh, Eric and Spirit, these, oh my gosh, just spend, spend, a, spend an hour with them and just be like transformed. Like you can't, like anything that is like pharisaical and religious inside of you, spend some time with Eric and Spirit and it's like, and it just, it has, it's like the alien thing. It just, you know, it just kind of, it has to leave. It can't stay around. Um, all right, all right, enough. Um, we're in a series called You Asked For It. Uh, and uh, the premise of the series is on Easter, what we did is we did a survey. And we said, what do you want us to preach about? And then you gave us some topics. And then we tried to find the threads and what was common. And we built a sermon series based on what you said you wanted to hear. Today, one of those topics you said you want to hear about was friendship. And so I'm going to talk to you guys about friendship today. The message is entitled, A Friend Indeed. We're going to be looking at two primary passages of Scripture. One of them is in the Old Testament. One of them, in, one of them is in the New the Old Testament is 1 Samuel chapter 18, and we're going to look at chapter 20 as well. And then the second passage is in Philippians chapter 2. I need to slow down a little bit probably, right? No, I got to get all these words in, otherwise I'm going to run out of time. Um, 1 Samuel is one of the historical books of the Old Testament. There are several genres in Scripture. If you're not familiar with that, you should dig in some time and see that there are several genres in Scripture. 1 Samuel is one of the historical books. Uh, 1 Samuel begins kind of outlining the life of a very famous prophet named? Samuel. Samuel, wow, yeah. I was thinking we would, we would have a little more on that one, being that the book is called Samuel. But uh, then it transitions, uh, it's transitions to talk about the first king of Israel who was? 
Saul. Okay, praise God. All right. And then, but then it also transitions and it really starts talking about the second king of Israel. Please, 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 please. Okay. All right, church. The Bible tells me so. Okay. All right. So we're, we're going to start off in chapter 18. David has just slain the, Goli- the, the, the giant, the Philistine Goliath, and he has caught the attention of, of King Saul, but not only him, but he's made a great impression on Saul's son, who is Jonathan, the prince of Israel. And so we're going to jump in. 1 Samuel chapter 18, verse 1. As soon as he had finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as his own soul. And Saul took him that day and would not let him return to his father's house. Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David and his armor and even his sword and his bow and his belt. So David and Jonathan became fast friends. But as soon, or really soon after their their friendship started to bud, what happened is that David returned to Jerusalem and people started singing about him, which is great. Except they were singing about him in comparison with the king, and they were kind of saying that he was better than the king in a way. And so Saul started getting real jealous. He's like, wait, 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 wait. I know David did the good thing and the cool thing, killing Goliath and everything, but I'm still the king. He started getting jealous. He started getting mad at David. David didn't do anything wrong. But how many of you guys know that sometimes when you're jealous, the person didn't have to do anything wrong, and you just mad? Oh, come on, church. Don't get religious on me. No, I never get jealous. Never. Super secure. Super know my identity. So anyway, Saul gets really mad at David. He throws a couple spears at him, misses both. David's got that kind of shepherd boy vibe going. He's like, he's, he's small, he's agile. He knows how to move. He knows how to, to move and, and kill the lions. He knows how to kill the bears. He's... So when that didn't work, Saul gets a little creative. Really strange thing. He's like, you know what? So the spears didn't work. I'm not, I'm not that good at throwing spears but I know what I can do. I can offer David one of my daughters for him to marry. Well, how is that going to get him killed? Well, let me tell you. Saul goes, I know. I'll demand a bride price, a very hefty bride price of, you guessed it, a hundred Philistine foreskins. Saul thought, well, surely he'll die on his way doing that. So, I mean, one of them is going to be able to get him. But David was uh, pretty much the real deal. And he brought back those hundred Philistine foreskins. Hopefully he killed them first. Um, and so Saul had to give his, his daughter, McCall, to David as a bride. What? <laughs> I'm just saying. It's the Bible. Let's just talk about it. It's real. Don't ignore the uncomfortable parts of the Bible. Um. So anyhow, that didn't work, and so he had to get a little bit more direct. He's like, you know what? I'm just going to talk to my leaders. I'm going to bring some of my key leaders in. All right, key leaders, we're killing David. Here we go. Help me out. Except one of those key leaders was his son, Jonathan, and what do we know about Jonathan? He loved David, and so instead of going along with that scheme, he went to David and made a scheme of his own, and they made a plan together, and basically it was, okay, David, you're going to go away. And then I'm going to fill out King Saul. I'm going to fill out my dad a little bit and see if he's going to relent, see if he's going to get over this, if this blows over, and then he's not going to try to kill you anymore. So they made the plan, and then, and then I'll communicate to you, and we'll talk about that in a minute. So Saul goes, I mean, I'm sorry, Jonathan goes, and he hangs out with Saul a little bit, has dinner with him. First night, not a big deal, but he comes back, and Saul's beginning to pick up, and he's like, okay, where is this son of Jesse? 
And then as he's questioning Jonathan, I can just imagine Jonathan going, oh, oh, crap, oh, crap, this is going to be, and then all of a sudden, Saul picks up on it, and he's like, oh, no, 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 I see what you're doing. You made a scheme with David. And so this is where we find him. In, in 1 Samuel chapter 20, verse 30, it says, then Saul's anger was kindled against Jonathan, and he said to him, you son of a perverse, rebellious woman, do I not know that you have chosen the son of Jesse? which is David, to your own shame and to the shame of your mother's nakedness. For as long as the son of Jesse lives on earth, on the earth, neither you nor your kingdom shall be established. Therefore, send and bring him to me, for he shall surely die. And then Jonathan answered Saul, his father, why should he be put to death? What has he done? But Saul hurled his spear at him, again, not a very good spear thrower, <laughs> hurled his spear at him to strike him. So Jonathan knew that his father was determined to put David to death. So Jonathan's like, look, my dad's not going to relent. I got to go and communicate to David. So what he does is he takes a servant boy. They go out into a field where David is hiding beside some rocks. And what they had communicated is Jonathan said, okay, I'm going to shoot some arrows. And when the servant boy goes to grab the arrows, if I say, hey, boy, they're beyond you, that means, David, run, run, get out of here. And so that's what he does. Except whenever the, the servant boy goes and grabs the arrows, Jonathan sends him back to the city so that he can have one last kind of reunification with David and say goodbye to him in person. And this is where we find it, in verse 41. And, and as soon as the boy had gone, David rose from beside the stone heap and fell on his face to the ground and bowed three times. And they kissed one another and wept with one another, David weeping the most. And then Jonathan said to David, go in peace because we have sworn, both of us, in the name of the Lord, saying, the Lord shall be between me and you and between my offspring and your offspring forever. And he rose and departed and Jonathan went into the city. All right, we're going to transition a little bit and go look at Philippians chapter 2, but I want you to remember 1 Samuel 18 and, uh, 1 Samuel 18 and 20 because I think there's a lot of parallel, parallels and connections between these passages, so don't forget it. Philippians is a letter written by Paul. We familiar with Paul? good. Paul was a big deal. Um, he wrote a lot of the New Testament. He wrote this particular letter from prison, telling the Philippians, hey y'all, I know you're facing troubles, but you need to take on the attitude and the lifestyle of Jesus. And in chapter two, what he specifically addresses is the humility of Jesus. He describes the humility of Jesus and then challenges the believers in Philippi to take on that same humility. We're gonna start in verse one of chapter two. Paul says, so if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you not look let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you that you have given it to us and that your word is living and active. It's not just some old book. It's living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, dividing even between soul and spirit. And we welcome the sharpness of your word today. Lord, we pray that you would transform us by your word, that your truth would stand, and that everything else would fall to the ground and be forgotten. 
God, we completely entrust this time to you. We say, have your way. In Jesus' name. So I've always wanted to get married since I was really little. And um, I, w- I would say, like, I go to kindergarten, I'm looking for a wife. <laughs> I'm just saying. Kindergarten, I'm looking for a wife. I'm like, all of a sudden, I get to spend all these hours a day, and there's girls everywhere that are not my sister. This rocks. I love my sister, but y- you feel me. So anyway, I, uh, here's the thing, though. I always wanted to get married. But it, I mean, it's not, I, I mean, I had no concept of sex. Like I, I, I in, my, in my mind, I'm like, how babies are made is that two parents kiss and then every time they kiss, they get to make a decision as to whether they're going to have a baby or not. <laughs> Which is true in a sense, but, <laughs> but not how I was thinking about it, all right? Not how I was thinking about it. No, what I saw and what attracted me to marriage was I saw this beautiful friendship and partnership between my mom and my dad. And I loved it. I was like, wow, they're partners for life. They're best friends. They love each other so much, and it's always. And I was so attracted to the idea. And I would say that I idealized marriage, and then eventually I would say marriage even became an idol in my life. I began to think of marriage like a finish line. Like, okay, when I get married, my life will finally begin. When I get married, I will finally have access to the abundant life, life to the fullest. I will have arrived when I get married. All the married folks are like, oh my God. So I had this mind. It's funny because it's so false. Um, so, I, so I had this mindset. And so, you know, all throughout my teenage years, I'd have all these failed dating relationships. And then when I was 20 years old, I came to this place where I just kind of grew cold to the idea. And I thought, you know what, maybe marriage isn't for me. I've tried and failed so, with so many relationships, you know, maybe, maybe I'm just not called to it because not everyone is called to marriage. And I thought, well, maybe I'm one of them. Maybe I'm called to singleness. Maybe I'm a bachelor to the rapture. Maybe I got the Paul call in my life. You know what I mean? I was just kind of like, maybe that's it. And that's okay. Whatever. It's cool. Both callings are great. Married calling is great. Singleness calling is great. Amen. Absolutely. They're both hundred percent legitimate. So I came to that place and I kind of like gave it to the Lord. I was like, God, would you just like keep women like out of my, I mean, in a, in a romantic sense until like, you're really going to bring my wife to me. Just keep, just keep me, keep, keep my mind fixed on you. And then about a month later, (laughs) hear me out. (laughs) About a month later on June 23rd, 2012, I met Micaiah Ferguson. And let me tell you, there was the beginning of summer and that summer, my whole perspective was shifted. And I'm telling you, within about two months, I was like, this is it. And I was like, there are two possible conclusions in this story. Either I am going to pursue this woman until she agrees to marry me, or I'm going to pursue this woman until she tells me to completely get out of her life, and she doesn't want to see me anymore. Those are the only two conclusions left. And I mean, that's where I was at. Y'all know what happened, though. Come on. Y'all. Yo, yo, no, what happened though? About two years later, on September 14, 2014, she became Micaiah Owens. And I went, I have arrived. Life can finally begin. I'm married. And then I found out that I had not arrived. I I realized shortly into our marriage that I had other dreams and aspirations other than just being married. And get this, 
my wife had other dreams and aspirations other than getting married to me. Oh. <laughs> Who knew? And so we're getting to know each other, which by the way is a very good idea once you get married. <laughs> to keep getting to know each other because we feel like we know our spouse when we get married. You don't know them when you get married. You don't know them. We're like, oh, we, you know, we're ready to get married because we really know each other. No, you have met. You have met each other. You have gotten some feelings for each other. You do not know them. So I learned that. And uh, as we got to know each other, we, Makai and I saw that our dreams and aspirations were actually really different. And I came to this inner crisis, and I'm like, oh my goodness, but we're partners for life, and we're in this, we're in this forever, and, and, it's, and it's us versus the world, and we got to be on the same page. we got to be headed in the, right, in the same direction, which, in, I mean, to a sense is true, but it wasn't something to worry about. It was, I had a wrong perspective. I, I remember God kind of shook me out of that, and he showed me that I had been looking at my marriage in a very wrong way. He showed me that I had been looking at my wife only as she relates to me. I had been looking at her like her existence was like my partner and that I was, I was the main thing. And I wouldn't have articulated it this way on purpose, but what had really happened in my heart is that I was viewing and living like the hero, the protagonist of the story, and I was looking at my wife as my sidekick. You know, in my mind, I was Frodo Baggins and she was my Samwise Gamgee. In my, in my mind, in my mind, I was David and she was my Jonathan. You know, like there was, she, she was supporting me. She was my, she, it was my story and she was a support character in it. And God put this scripture on my heart and he began to write it on my heart. And it was from this passage in Philippians. Philippians 2, 3, do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Amen. And it just began to just, I just meditated on it and it just, it got in me and I was so curious about this word to count, count, count others as more. So I looked it up in the Greek and, and the Greek word is so interesting. Yes, it does mean to, to consider or to suppose or to, to vote toward, but it also means to lead. And I was like, why, why to lead? And the root word of the Greek word that is this word to count is the word that would be used, the noun for a leader or a government official. And so in a sense, as I was reading and studying this word, to count is to cast a heavy or authoritative vote toward. And so as God was working on my heart, he was showing me, Seth, you're not just supposed to treat or treat, yeah, treat your wife as if she were more significant, but that you are supposed to adopt a heart posture that casts a heavy or authoritative vote toward her significance. That you can no longer live in such a way that life is your story and, then, and, and that she's, she, she's a support character, but you must realize that she has her own story. And there's a time and a place for you to be living your story and for her to support you. And there's a time and a place for her to live out her story and for you to be supporting her. And right now you might be going, well, I thought you said you were talking about friendship today, but all you've talked about so far is your wife. 
which is true. But my kind of snarky, maybe not so kind response would be like, if you don't think that a message about marriage is a message about friendship, I'm very concerned about your marriage. But my softer, more pastoral response would be, you know, I'm talking about my marriage because God used my marriage to teach me how to be a friend. Because as soon as I realized that I had taken on this perspective with my wife, it began to overflow and I began to see all these different friendships in my life where I had lived as if I were always the David and they were always the Jonathan, that I was the main character and they were the support character, that it was all my story and everyone else was just a support in my story, not taking into account that every human being has their own story and that there was a time and a place for me to live out being David and for someone to come alongside me and be Jonathan. And there was a time and a place for vice versa. I want the, I feel like the question that is prompted inside of my heart for this weekend, the main question is, what does it mean to be a good friend? And I think that Jonathan's life and his interaction with David is really helpful for that. And we're gonna look at that from 1 Samuel chapter 18 and 20. But check it out. Sometimes I believe that questions can be more helpful in learning than just me giving you conclusions. So I'm going to ask you guys some questions today, and some of them I think are probably going to make you pretty uncomfortable. But I want to preface it and let you know that I'm asking these questions to myself first and to you second. I'm letting you know that I'm personally wrestling with the questions I'm going to ask you. I do not have these ones figured out, and I, God has been dealing with me this week over these questions. So all I'm doing is inviting you in to the process that he already has me in. This isn't from a place where, yeah, God finished his work in me, and so I just want to let you guys know this is how you get to there. No, it's God wrecked me this week, and I, don't, I think it's for more than just me. You feel me? I'm not here to call you out even though some of the questions might feel that way. But I am here to call us up to a higher perspective, to a heavenly lens, because I believe that that's what Jesus is calling us to. Fair enough? No emails? You're like, well, we'll see. We'll see. I don't know if I'm going to get offended yet. You haven't said anything. Well, I did say some things. Maybe you're already offended. I don't know. So what did Jonathan do? The first thing, hey guys, what's up team? You guys are wonderful. Um, the first thing I saw Jonathan do in, right away in chapter 18 is what does it says? What it says is he gave, I'm sorry, it says he knit himself to David and he loved him as his own soul, which reminds me of this teacher I know who said, and the second is like it, that you would love your neighbor as yourself. Jonathan got a hold of the heart of God for David. In Philippians 2, 2, it says, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Jonathan unified himself with David, even though David was of a lesser social class. He was a shepherd boy. Not only that, he was the least of the sons of Jesse. But what Jonathan did is he empathized with David. And he put himself in, in David's shoes and thought, I think there's something on this guy. 
I think he has a story. And so my first maybe difficult question for you today is, how's your empathy? How's your empathy during this season? How's your empathy when you're watching the news? How's your empathy when you're on social media? How's your empathy for your friends who have a different skin color than you? That maybe, just maybe, have had a slightly different experience than you growing up here. How's your empathy with your friends who are in law enforcement, who just maybe might be facing things that you don't understand? Have you tried putting yourself in their shoes? Have you tried taking on their perspective and going, I wonder how it feels to be them? The second thing I saw Jonathan do for David is he took the elements that identified his authority and his royalty and he put them on David. Really unique thing that he did. You know, we, we read over it and we're like, oh, that's nice. He's generous. No, it's not just generous. It's not like he gave him a TV. Jonathan gave David what identified him. A robe is a very important thing in that culture. It is a mantle. It is, it is, what, it is what marks who I am and what I do. And I, and I believe that it was a prophetic act, a prophetic act that was, Jonathan was already endorsing David going, I know that I am the bloodline of the king, but you are the chosen king. In Philippians, Two, five through seven, it says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Jonathan took on a servant attitude, a submitted attitude to David, even though David at that point was still just a shepherd boy who killed a giant. It reminds me again of the words of Jesus in Mark 10. The son of man came not to be served, but to serve. I'll say that a different way. The king of the universe came not to be served, but to serve. The alpha and the omega came not to be served, but to serve. When you think about your friends, do you have a servant attitude toward them? Do you have a how can I help you attitude toward them? Do you have, how, how, what can I do that would make your life better? Do you have the perspective of using your authority and your influence to help one of your friends. I'll say it this way. Have you considered that maybe there are certain advantages or privileges in your life that might be used to elevate someone else? Have you considered that? Jonathan knew that protecting David, this is a big one, this is a heavy one for me. Jonathan knew that by protecting David, that he would never be king. Jonathan knew that. This is a big deal. When Saul said, Jonathan, as long as this David lives, you will never be king. Even though he was saying it in a rude way, he was actually speaking the truth. Because Saul knew too. Saul knew his time was almost up. And he knew that the kingdom was gonna be coming to David. But here's the thing, the difference between Saul and Jonathan is that Jonathan said, yeah, Okay, but I've already made peace with that because I've already decided to take on the perspective of David and see that he has a story that's going to be told. 
He has a story that's going to be told, and it doesn't take away from who I am. We just have different callings. Jonathan knew his role, and when he knew his role, he was able to play it well and play it excellently. Philippians 2, 3 through 4, I'm going to say it again. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Look not only to your needs, but to the needs of others also. When was the last time that you considered one of your friends more significant than yourself? And you might be going, I I can feel the religion rising up, be like, well, that would be self-deprecating to me, and I'm royalty, and I'm a child of God, so that would be wrong. No, 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 no. You elevating someone else is not the same as you putting yourself down. That's a completely different thing. Completely different thing. For you to elevate a friend doesn't take an ounce away from who you are. Not an ounce. So when's the last time that you cast a heavy or authoritative vote, as it were? You counted. You casted a heavy or authoritative vote toward the significance and the importance of your friend. Do you look at your friends as support characters in your story, or do you esteem them in such a way that they have a story completely outside of the way that they relate to you? Have you asked them about their story lately? Have you asked one of your black or brown friends to tell you their story lately? Have you asked one of your law enforcement friends to tell you their story lately? Because I heard some stories this week from people and I got very uncomfortable. And I got, I got some pain and some weirdness and some all the bad stuff right here because I didn't know what to do with what was being shared with me. I didn't feel like I had a solution. I didn't feel like I had a, 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 an answer. All I felt was this is not good. This is not good and I'm not sure what I'm supposed to do about it. But in the midst of my discomfort, do you know what also happened? God took me out of my own shoes and he said, hey, Seth. This is what it feels like to be someone else. Why don't you take a step out of your own story for just a few moments and try to see reality from the eyes of your friend who's had a completely different experience, different story than you. That that was not a fun thing. Not a fun thing. I'm telling you, like I said, God dealt with me this week. Jonathan stood up to injustice against David, even though the injustice was being instigated by his own dad, who was also the king of the country. Jonathan was not passive about injustice toward David. Feel me. Jonathan could have said, well, I don't have anything against David. I'm not helping my dad in his plan to kill David. So that's like doing my part, right? Sounds familiar. Well, I don't have a problem with... I'm not... So that's like doing my part, right? You see, our lack of participation in the continuance of injustice is not the same as standing for justice. Not the absence of the wrong thing is not the same as the presence of the right thing. It's not. 
We can't just sit and comfort ourselves and going, well, injustice is happening. I get it. It exists. But I'm not, I'm not, I'm not doing it. So, like, good on me. Are you actively standing for justice for your friends? Are you silent? Are you speaking up? If you're speaking up, is it lip service? Or is there true transformation that's happening inside of you? Are you allowing the spirit to turn you into a different thing? I'm, I, I haven't land, I, 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 these questions I'm asking you are ones, seriously, I'm here in front of you going, I don't know what, I, I don't know if I'm doing this right. But I, I think that we all have to start somewhere, and so I'm going to start here. Very simply, racial prejudice is not okay, and I don't have the luxury of being passive about it. Violence against the innocent is not okay, and I don't have the luxury of being passive about it. Destroying and stealing things that do not belong to you is not okay, and I don't have the luxury of being passive about it. Let me just challenge you. If you only said amen to the last one of those, check yourself. Check yourself. Because all three of those were evil, not just the last one. I'm not trying to guilt trip you. Don't hear that. I'm not trying to guilt trip you. God asks us questions not to guilt trip us. He asks us questions to bring transformation inside of us. When he said, Adam, where are you? It wasn't because he didn't know where he was. He was going, Adam, I know where you are and we need to have a talk. And I think that he might be coming to his church and going, church, where are you? Oh, I know where you are, but I think we need to have a talk. Jonathan made a multi-generational covenant with David, blessing the relationship not only between Jonathan and David, but also between their offspring. And you're going, whoa, 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 that just came out of left field. What does that have to do with anything you're talking about? Oh, it has everything to do with what I'm talking about. Because in the U.S. in 2020, we don't talk about covenant a lot. It's, it's kind of an archaic term. It's like, what's covenant? Oh, you mean like, like a promise? Well, kind of, but it's different. Because a covenant... In, in the Old Testament and in that culture, there was like an active party in the covenant and a passive party in the covenant. There was someone who instigated the covenant. There was someone who received the covenant. They had a part to fulfill. But there was still, there was, there was an instigator and there was kind of a receiver. And so it's important to understand covenant because covenant is the language of God. It's how he interacts with his people. From the very beginning, he made covenant with Adam. He made covenant with Noah. He made covenant with Abraham. He made covenant with Jacob. He made covenant with, with Moses and with the nation of Israel. He made, he made covenant with David. And then finally, my favorite, he made covenant with all believers through his son, Jesus. That is how he relates with us. That is how he befriends us. God befriends us via covenant. This covenant relationship between Jonathan and David, it wasn't just lip service and it wasn't just an emotional moment. I know a lot of us, sometimes we give our friends a hug and we're like, BFF, man. We're always, we're, I mean, we're... And then you see them post something that is a different political view on, on Facebook and you defriend them. And you're like, I, I mean, I meant, I, meant like, I meant like we're BFFs as long as you align with every single view that I have. Oh. 
No, 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 no. The covenant that they had actually had an opportunity to play out because here's the deal. Jonathan would die a long time before David would die. And then David would become king. And then there was a son of Jonathan who, who was crippled, who was disadvantaged, and he came to the house of David seeking refuge. And in that culture, it would have made sense for David because Saul was an enemy of David and Saul abused David. It would have made sense for the offspring of Saul to be an enemy of David and for David to say, Mephibosheth, get out of here. You have no place in this place because your grandpa was a jerk. But instead he goes, no, 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 no. Mephibosheth, you have a place because your father was a friend. And because we made some promises. We made covenant, and I'm going to hold true. Where would David have been without Jonathan? Jonathan helped David escape, and David remembered. And even when it was an inconvenience to him, he came through. And I would just say, we have an idea of friendship. I get it. But covenant friendship is something that God wants to restore in this culture. It's a friendship that says, I disagree with you, but you're not getting rid of me. You can try to cut me off and you can try to cancel me, but I am right here. And I am with you and I am for you. Covenant friendship says, I got your back no matter what, and not only that, until the day I die, and not only that, but I'm going to teach my kids to have your kids back, and I'm going to teach their kids to have your kids' kids back. And there's nothing that you can tweet that'll make me go away. I'm just saying, how deep does loyalty go? When's the last time you cut someone off? when it was a disagreement where you were supposed to work through it. And you made the excuse and you said, well, I think we just have irreconcilable differences. Let me just tell you something about that phrase. Get it out of your vocabulary. What does Jonathan show us? Jonathan showed us empathy, servitude, humility. He showed us justice and he showed us loyalty. That is the type of friend that Jesus is calling me and you to be. I'm going to say that again. Empathy, servanthood, humility, justice, and loyalty. And I'm not there. That's a tall order. But I'm sure as heck trying. And I think the Lord comes to us today and he says, what kind of friend have you been lately? What kind of friend? But he doesn't leave it there. Like I told you, he doesn't leave it there with the questions. He's not guilt tripping us. You see, Jonathan was a good friend, but Jesus was the perfect friend. And Paul actually talks about it in the last verse of the passage that we read early in Philippians 2. In verse 8, it says, And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And I think of his words not long before that when he said, Greater love has no one than this, that he would lay his life down for his friends. I believe that the answer to the pain and our nation and our world is a whole lot more supernatural than it is natural. We're pretty darn good at looking to the things which are seen. But it's time to look at the things which are unseen. Because we got plenty of seen things in front of us that we're trying to make the solutions. Voting, sure, it can help. Laws and regulation, yeah, sure, that can help. Peaceful protests, okay, that can help. Serving and protecting your community, that can help. 
Giving money to an organization, that can help. Posting on social media could maybe help. But not one of those things is what changes the heart of man. Not one. I don't care who told you that. Not one of those things is what changes the heart of man. You know what changes the heart of man? A personal friendship with Jesus and with his spirit. That's it. That's what transforms us. Once we are in Christ, we are a new creation. We don't need to just be made gooder. We need for our old person to die and for us to be a completely new thing. That is what changes the heart of man. And so my biggest, most important question of the day is this. Are you a personal friend of Jesus? That's the biggest question of the day. And if the answer is yes, that's great. Now I just refer you to every single other question I ask you today. Because Jesus is calling his friends to a different type of friendship. If the answer is no, I'm so stinking glad you're here. We are so glad you're here. We're so glad that you had the courage and the bravery in the midst of all that's going on right now for you to come, not knowing, not being in relationship with, this, with Jesus, and that you would be among us because we're a bunch of Jesus freaks. Right. You are so brave, and that's awesome. Wow, thank you for honoring us in that way that you would, that you would just worship with us, I mean, that you would just be with us and listen, and however uncomfortable you got when we started getting really loud and spitting and having wide eyes and dancing and really loud music. I'm so glad you're here. And this is what I would say. Just like I said before, covenant is the way that God has been trying to relate with us. Here's the thing. He made us for relationship with him. We declined the friend request. And then he came after us and he said, covenant, will you be my friend? Covenant, will you be my friend? Covenant. I I know you messed up the last one and the last one and the last one and the last one and the last one, but I still want to be friends with you. And then finally he goes, ah, yes, I'll send my son. I'll send my son. And while some of us view God as sitting up in this, in this place and going, just kind of lounging, going, all right, come on over. No, 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 no. He steps into the flesh and blood, into our sandals. And he goes, no, 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 no. I've come to make you my friend. Jesus said, behold, I stand at the door and knock. Hey, I still want to be your friend. Even even if you got this preached to you 50 times before and you said no and your pride got in the way, I stand at the door and knock. Will you accept my friend request? So I would just invite you very plainly and boldly right now, if your answer to that question was no, Jesus is not a personal friend of yours, but you want that to change and you want to be in relationship with him. If you want to be in relationship with the king of the universe, the lion and the lamb, the perfect friend, I would just ask you to raise your hand. Amen. 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 Beautiful. Beautiful. Come on. Come on. Yes. Beautiful. Come on. Come on. Yes. Thank you so much for that bravery. I can tell you, he's the best friend you'll ever have. 
I just want to pray with you right now in church. I want to invite you to pray with me as well as we stand in solidarity with our brothers and sisters. But those of you who are making that decision to step into this friendship, don't pray this with me out of emptiness. Only pray this with me. Repeat after me if this is coming from the depths of who you are and this is the statement that you want to make to Jesus today. Would you bow your heads with me? Father, I recognize that I messed up and that I am a sinner and that my sin separated me from you but that you love me so much that you sent your son to die for me so that our relationship might be restored. I come to you today in humility and in surrender. And I say, you can have it all. And I confess that your son Jesus is Lord, Savior, and the perfect friend. I commit my life to you. Whatever you want, whenever you want it, however you want it, I'm yours. In Jesus' name, amen. Beautiful. Can we celebrate with our friends one more time? I'm fixing to get off the stage, but I want to just say one last time, I love you. I'm not asking you hard questions because I don't like you or because I want to make you feel bad. No, I, I really believe that this week that God showed me his heart for you. And it wasn't one of, tell them how bad they are. It was, tell them how beautiful it can be. Tell them how beautiful it can be. And so I just want to pray for you right now, and myself, honestly, that we would receive this and that we would be changed. So Father, I lift up all my brothers and sisters to you here. I pray that our hearts would remain open, that we would be malleable, Lord. You would shape us and form us according to your image, according to your will. God, where there has been hatred, where there has been misunderstanding and a lack of empathy, we lay them at your feet today. We say, clean out the cracks in all the dark places. Clean out the cracks in all the dark places and make us more, look more like your son, Jesus.